Ours is a world that lacks grace. If you doubt that, you've been sleeping through the evening news. If you'll stay awake long enough to listen and watch it for an hour, I challenge you to find one segment that you could mark down as an example of grace in our world. Don't hold your breath. It's hardly to be found. Ours is a world of gross hostility, anger, fomenting relationships that turn against others rather than build up others. It's a world of domestic conflict, even religious misunderstandings and scandals, economic oppressions, family fights, drug abuse, not just pornography, but child pornography. Not just sex trafficking, but sex trafficking of little girls and little boys. The grace is missing. It must break the heart of our God as he watches the world in its eroding condition. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 6. You will read words that reveal this is nothing new. God repented that he even made man. That every thought and motive of his heart was only evil continually. And that was early on. And here we are today, a time of warfare, arguments, out and out fist fights on the street corner, muggings, and on and on the list goes. Not even the church is preserved from its harshness. The world seems to have seeped in even the church. I read this last week of a dear broken-hearted woman who was standing in the sanctuary of her church. She was a member. Her 14-year-old daughter was by her side. She was hoping for a place of refuge and perhaps even recovery she is going through a divorce, a heartbreaking divorce. She looks up and the pastor's wife is walking toward her with a frown. Her words were without grace. She said to her, can you just tell me this? Why are you divorcing if you love Jesus and if your husband loves Jesus, why are you doing this? 
embarrassed her daughter, embarrassed her knowing that the woman didn't even know her, for actually it was the first time that woman had ever spoken to her in the church. That was her opening volley. She said, if only I could have felt her arm around my shoulder and heard her whisper to my daughter and me, I am so sorry you're going through this. What would you have said? Or what have you said without knowing all the facts? How quickly we speak, not realizing there's a whole backstory in every heartbreaking situation about which we know either very little or nothing at all. Philip Yancey, in his fine book, What's So Amazing About Grace, has a wonderful way of describing this subject, and he does so throughout the book. In it, he talks about a sort of conversational experiment he has tried for the last uh, period of time he said, whenever I find myself in a situation close to someone and we'll be there for a little while, like a seatmate on an airplane, I will strike up a conversation and before long I will ask a question, hoping for an answer that will bring comfort. I will ask, when I name, when I give you the words, evangelical Christian, what comes to mind? Yancey states, not once, not once in all of these dialogues have I ever heard the word grace spoken, not once. The reason I camp on this and have done so for several weeks now is because I don't know of anything that will build up one another in the church more than demonstrations, genuine, authentic demonstrations of grace toward one another. Kindness, tenderheartedness, willingness to forgive. Perhaps it was the same absence that Paul felt back in the first century 
among his friends in the Roman church, the church at Rome. So in writing his letter to them, after this grand doctrinal treatise that he develops in the first eight chapters, and then 9, 10, and 11 when he addresses the subject of the Jews and the plan of God. Beginning in chapter 12 to the end, he talks about our horizontal relationship with one another. Before he ends the letter, he camps on the subject of grace in what we know today is Romans chapter 14. There were no chapters in the first century when letters were written. They've been added to make the reading of the Bible convenient and helpful. But I would say toward the end of the letter to the Romans, Paul gets into the subject and he talks to these people he loves who live in the busy and overcrowded city of Rome about grace. He gives us, before the end of that chapter, four guidelines for passing grace along to others, helping others learn to fly in their liberty and to soar in their freedom, rather than structuring their lives or controlling them or manipulating them or giving them a rigid set of rules to follow. Paul doesn't do that. In these four guidelines, he begins with this word I mentioned earlier that's ground zero for grace, acceptance. The first guideline, I suggest, is found in verses one to four. Acceptance is basic to letting others be, to setting others free. It all starts with accepting them, not sizing them up, not checking them out, not seeing if they are our kind, whatever that means. I've never figured that one out. But rather accepting people as they are. That's how we have an opportunity to know God. He does that for us. He so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, whoever Whoever believes in him is unconditional. It's universal. 
It's for you. It's for me. It's for our children. It's for our parents. It's for the aging. It's for the, 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 the youth. It's, it's for those hearing it for the first time. It's for those who have rebelled against it for decades. Because he accepts us. Basic in spreading grace to others that they feel accepted. Last time we were together, I mentioned my one of my mentors, Ray Stedman, who had written a piece on acceptance, and I read it to you. I realized that repetition can be boring at the same time. Repetition can be very helpful for memory. I've never learned a verse of scripture by reading it only once. I repeat it over and over and over and over. And in the repetition, I'm able to memorize the verse. By repeating certain definitions, I think we get a better grasp of what the word means. So let me do that today. I want to read again what Stedman refers to as acceptance. Listen to his description. Acceptance means you are valuable just as you are. It means it allows you to be the real you. Uh, you aren't forced into someone else's idea of who you really are. It means your ideas are taken seriously. Since they reflect you, you can talk about how you feel inside and why you feel that way, and someone really cares. Acceptance means you can try out your ideas without being shot down. You can even express heretical thoughts and discuss them with intelligent questioning. You feel safe. No one will pronounce judgment on you even though they don't agree with you. It doesn't mean you will never be shown to be wrong. It simply means it's safe to be you. And no one will destroy you out of prejudice. It's an awfully good description of acceptance. It's basic to setting others free. If you want to begin to pass along the grace that others need, take them at face value. Don't pay attention to their color. Don't worry about the dialect they speak. 
Don't try to analyze as you look at them and try to measure whether they might have been through this or gone through that or whatever may have been a background. I called it sizing other people up. Don't go there. Don't, don't go there. Accept them. Listen to them. You might start with your own growing children, teenagers. Listen to them. Really listen without interrupting. And I might add, at the risk of offending some, without insulting them. Children have feelings too. Teenagers can be hurt by what parents say, especially if you say it in front of others. So we start with acceptance. You get the picture. It's basic to setting other people free. Your neighbor, accept your neighbor. The person you're doing business with, accept the person. Those at the grocery store where you do, accept those who help you, who check you out when you leave with your groceries. The people at the dry cleaners, those at the store where you're shopping, those in the mall. Meet them with a smile rather than a frown. The first guideline is acceptance starts grace to flow. Here's the second. In verses 5 to 8, you will find this principle. Letting others be allows the Lord to direct their lives. This is extremely important if you happen to be a controller or a manipulator. And you haven't broken that habit. When you are introducing grace, you, you, you take hands off. You, you pull back from any attempt to take charge or control or force your advice. Become a better listener than speaker. Care a little. Enter into their world. And not, not so quick with the answers. Learn to say, you know, I don't know. Or, I'm not sure. Let's probe this together. Legalists don't do that. They're there with that long finger pointing at your chest, telling you to get this straight and get it now. I came across the theme song of the legalistic church. Listen. Believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else. Confess. Feel as I feel, think only as I think. 
eat what I eat and drink but what I drink. Look as I look, do always as I do. Then and only then will I have fellowship with you. Cynthia and I used to attend a church like that. Years, really decades ago. Early, early on in our marriage until we agreed. We're, we're tired of the abuse. We're weary of this toxic atmosphere where the only one right is the one in the pulpit. And he's always right. And don't you touch God's anointed, which was his favorite verse, quoted all the time. By the way, he took it out of context, and that's another subject. Legalists are good at taking verses out of context because it doesn't carry out what they want it to say. Take off the controls. Lighten up. Give people room. Let them think on their own. Risk their disagreeing with you without arguing. They may be right. That's a creative thought, isn't it? They may be right. And when they are, tell them. We set people free by assuring them we're not there to control them or manipulate them, and we wouldn't if we were tempted to try. Which brings me to the third guideline. Freeing others means we never assume a role we're not qualified to fill. That statement should be enough to to stop any one of us from judging another. You're not qualified. For to judge means you have to know all the facts without any prejudice. And you're very objective. Regardless of your title or your role, you're, you're open. The reason we're not qualified to judge others is we don't know all the facts behind another's decisions. We are unable to discern another's motive or struggles. We're not, we're not totally objective. We have our own hang-ups and blind spots. We're all flawed and sinful. Which is why Jesus, in his great Sermon on the Mount, speaks with such force when he says, judge not that you be not judged. And then he uses an illustration that has some humor in it. He urges us to stop picking little specks out of other people's eyes. 
since you've got logs in your own eyes. I mean, how can you get that close with this big log in your eye? In other words, you've got so much to deal with in your own life. Lighten up on correcting the other person. Grace never forgets that. That was the beauty of Jesus, the only perfect man who's ever lived. Wrote that, said that, I should say, said that. Don't judge. Leave judging up to the one who does know all the facts, who is objective, who is fully aware of all the motives and all the hidden things and all the secrets. He's qualified. Let me review these first three before I get to the fourth guideline because I want you to remember them. Number one, accepting others is basic to letting them be. Everything starts with acceptance. Letting others be allows the Lord to direct their lives. Third, freeing others means we never assume a role we're not qualified to fill. And then if you read verses 13 to 18, here at the end of chapter 14 of Romans, you will come across a word I've hardly mentioned so far. Allow me to read a few verses. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother or sister's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. That gives me a pause because I, I realize I didn't clarify the matter of the meat and the vegetables. In the first century, the uh, taboo was not going to movies or going to live theater or, or, or playing cards or, or drinking wine for, for a dinner or uh, wearing certain attire or listening to certain kind of music or on and on and on the non-essentials go. In the first century, the major taboo was eating meat from an animal, part of which had been offered on an idol altar. But this, this part was not offered, so it was butchered, and it was prepared and put on sale in the butcher shop, and people would come and buy it. And there were those who were coming out of a background of idolatry, and they had come to Christ, and they looked at people buying meat that had once come from an animal offered by, uh, an, on, an, on an altar. And, oh, how can they do that? How can they eat that meat? It's contaminated. Paul says, actually, uh, nothing is unclean in itself. 
But he who thinks it is unclean, to him it is unclean, which leads to my respecting the one who struggles with that. And so there are those that just ate vegetables. So the, the meat eater would look down on the vegetable eater, and the vegetable eater would condemn the meat eater. That was the big taboo in that day. Sounds boring in our day, but in that day, it was the big deal. It was splitting the Roman church apart. Paul said, wait, 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 wait a minute. And now I get to that word I promised I would read to you. If because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. In other words, love trumps all these other things. Love helps you accept others as they are. Love keeps you from judging others. Love causes you to restrain your comments, which would judge another. Love keeps you from taking advantage of them in their weakness. You care about them. You love them. So here's the principle. Here's the guideline. Setting others free means we love them so much we must let them go. What prompts me to let my children go is my love for them. I don't want to control them. I don't want to manipulate them. I, I don't want to make all their decisions. My love says I find delight in encouraging them. If they ask, I'm happy to talk about it, but I'll never use that conversation as a put down or something that takes advantage of them because my love is such, I really want to let them go. And in love, I release them. We've tried to do that with all four of our children. Is there risk involved? Of course there is, of course. It's the risk that frightens the legalist. The legalist operates out of fear. What if? What if someone takes it too far? Well, they may. They actually may. That's the risk you take. But it's worth the risk because grace leaves room for risk. Letting go is risky. You've listened very carefully. I want to close with a, a piece that appeared in the American Scholar uh, magazine some time ago. It perfectly illustrates what I've been trying to uh, describe in this message. I want you to hear it and I want you to remember a stage in rearing your children, you who have done that. 
which would be many of us. It's titled, Learning the Bicycle. Listen carefully and remember. The older children pedal past, stable as little gyros, spinning hard to supper, then the bath and the bed, until at last we also quit. Silent and tired, beside the darkening yard where the trees shadow up instead of down. Their predictable lengths can only tease her as head lowered. She walks her bike alone. Somewhere between her wanting to ride and her certainty she will always fall. Tomorrow, though, I will run behind. Arms out to catch her, she'll tilt wide then, and, and then balance wide out of my reach until distance makes her small. Smaller beyond the place I know that to teach her I had to follow. And when she learned, I had to let her go. It's a message not only for parents, it's a message for fellow believers. Once I have taught, I have to let every one of you go. I do. And I will. I will not follow you. I will not stalk you. I will not send you little notes. I will not spy on you. I will not look through your keyhole. You in, are you behaving in there? Are you doing what you should be doing? You'll never find me doing that. I've learned over the years. My children helped me learn. When I helped them learn the bicycle. And finally, they got it. Remember the day they got it? Man, they thought, I can, I can ride to China. Bye. And off they go around the corner, and, and you can't see them anymore. They're out of sight. And then there's the car. Remember the car? You teach them to drive, and then, well, you're always in that front seat, you know, mashing on the floorboard when they're not pushing the brake. And finally, they get the hang of it. They get their own car. And they go their own way. 
and they're short to make up their own mind. And they're gone. To marriage, to the military, to some university miles and miles, maybe thousands of miles away, perhaps to some mission field, they're gone. You let them go. <laughs> Risking that? You better believe it. <laughs> and remember, that you're, you're still the parent. So keep your wallet handy. <laughs> There'll always be something. But your love stays strong. And you're so delighted that they still talk to you and love to embrace you. I had a dear woman say to me in this line just right after the first service, pray for me, she said, I have two children and I just can't let them go. One's 40 and one's 50. <laughs> Lady. Lady, let him go. God let you go. You trusted in his son, his savior. He doesn't stalk you. Oh, his spirit will convict you, and he loves you enough to care about you and warn you, but in the final, you, you, you make your own decision. You can sin to your fill. And he may choose to let you live a long life in your carnality. You don't like to hear that. I don't like to say it, but it's true. The father let the son go, and not until the son came to himself and returned did he know the joy of being home again. The father waiting for him, but he never chased after him. Grace. So the boy in the pig swine, in the swine pit says, I will get up from here and I'll go back to my father. Got home and <laughs> there he was. Come home, son. But looking out the window was an older brother who never did understand grace. Which is another story. Bow with me, will you? Grace for the moment. It's all that we need. 
all that we need. Let it be. Release that grip. Stop the worrying. Count on God to do his part now that you've done yours. And lean hard on his grace to take you through the lonely days when you don't hear and you don't know. You let them go. If you never asked Jesus to come into your life, what on earth are you waiting for? You'll never have a better moment than this one. He's right here. He's available. Of course, he'll be with you when you get in your car. He'll be with you when your head is on the pillow tonight. He'll never leave you, waiting for you to turn to him and take his son as Savior and Lord. Then you'll be introduced to that grace for the moment and realize it's all you need. We're going to sing it together once again as we close today, so stay seated after I pray. Dear Father, we do thank you for your faithful grace. Thank you for never writing us off, never throwing us out, never canceling our name from your book. Thank you for your grace staying with us, calling us home. Now teach us to pass along the same kind of grace to others. In this world that lacks grace, may we add a touch of it every day to someone else's life. I pray in the name of Jesus and for his sake alone. All God's people said, Chuck, thank you for teaching us about grace and living a grace-filled life in front of us. Let's close the service by singing that simple chorus. It's up on the screen, Grace for the Moment. Have a great afternoon.